Everybody got your Bibles out? That's good. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. This is, uh, yet again, another one of those really well-known stories in the Gospels, uh, possibly because it's one of the few stories, one of the few accounts that are given in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. There aren't many. Uh, most of the time you'll have a, an account of something happen, and you'll see it in Matthew and Mark, but you won't see it in Luke, or you'll see it in Luke and Mark, but you won't see it in Matthew. It's very rare that you see something recorded in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's actually very similar to a story in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, too. So that is the uh, this, this particular um, event is the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. So if you all thought ahead and looked up the passage before we got started this morning. Uh, you should be there by now, and if you're not, then you can catch up. Let's all stand and uh, hear our passage for this morning. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, as we spend our time this morning on this short passage, uh, a very familiar account, help us to understand the significance of the message contained in it. Help us not to lose sight of the the great example that we have in this passage. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen. Please have a seat. So, if you remember where we were at, we're in the, the city of Capernaum. If you look at Mark's account of this, he actually tells us that, that Jesus had gotten into the boat in order to teach. The crowd had gathered on the shore of the sea so close because they all wanted to hear this guy talk that Jesus was actually in danger of being pushed backwards into the water. So he got into the boat as kind of a, a floating podium, if you will, in order to teach. So Jesus gets into the boat. The disciples are in the boat with him. It's probably a fishing boat. And when he finishes teaching, according to, to Mark, he finishes teaching, he gives the command to cross over to the other side. Matthew just tells us that he gives the, the order to cross over to the other side. Um, this fishing boat was probably not more than maybe 20 feet long, give or take, probably not much wider than four or five feet. Uh, not being a boat architect, I can't tell you what the exact dimensions would be for a fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee, but it's not huge. It's a rather small boat. It's not like our shrimp fleet that we have out here. Um, it, it's it's a small boat. And the Sea of Galilee, is, is this is kind of important setting the landscape, around the Sea of Galilee there are a bunch of small mountains and valleys and, and, and some big peaks and, and then some more deep valleys and you have these different temperatures, having lived in Utah, uh, I don't know how many of you realize there is a mountain range that goes through Utah just east of Salt Lake City, the Wasatch Mountains. Uh, 
and the the mountain range it's awesome because you can watch the the weather come in from the west and travel across the the uh, the west of Utah is flat all right it is flat it makes highway 90 look mountainous it is flat so you can watch the weather come in from the west and then it hits those mountains and just stops it doesn't move just stops and and with all these mountains and valleys you you have cold air at the top of the mountain you have warm humid air on the sea of galilee you have all these different temperature differentials and and then you've got these valleys where the wind can kind of whip up and and it works like a tunnel and it magnifies the wind across the sea so there's a lot of potential for some really bad weather on this body of water the thing is most of the time the strong the the strong storms would hit during the daytime most of the fishing was done on the sea of galilee at night because as the temperatures cooled down over the water, the temperatures that are cooler up in the hills, you don't have that collision between hot air and cold air. And we saw hot air and cold air this week, right? That, that caused a tornado in New Orleans. That's what happens when you have a hot, humid weather system run into a cold, dry weather system. They They start to mix and then they start spinning and then buildings collapse and and houses get blown across the road so you can see this scene being set up for bad weather so that the disciples jesus they get in this boat but they go out across the the sea at night which is what makes this storm so remarkable the storm arises and there's there's a word here that's used that Matthew uses, he uses it a couple times in this passage. It says in verse 24, there arose a great storm. The the Greek word there is the word mega. (laughs) Yeah, a mega storm, a super storm, a Katrina-like storm arose on the Sea of Galilee. Can you imagine being in a 24-foot fishing boat? (laughs) In a storm like that? So when Matthew says, you know, and Matthew makes it sound so, so calm, right? And the boat was in danger of being swamped. <laughs> the, the disciples are bailing this boat as fast as they can because the waves are crashing and it's just a, a violent, violent storm. And Jesus, he was asleep. You know, there's only one place in all of the New Testament in the Gospels, where we read that Jesus is asleep, and this is it. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't sleep for his 33 years. I'm, I'm relatively certain he probably slept every night unless he was engaged in prayer like he was in the garden right before the, the crucifixion. <coughs> but here, Matthew says he's asleep. That's pretty remarkable. In this mega storm, he was calm. He wasn't terrified. I was reading through a, uh, a commentary on this passage, and it pointed out the similarity between Jesus here and what David talks about over in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. If you haven't, if you haven't read those, they're short psalms. They're easy ones to get through. They're not like Psalm 119 that takes like four days and a, a spelunker's 
gear. Uh, Psalm 119 is huge. Um, but Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are both relatively short. And in both of them, David starts talking about his enemies and their strength and, and the wicked and, and the trouble and the turmoil that he faces. So he's talking about these storms of life. But then by the end of the psalm, in both Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, David says that he lies down to sleep because he knows God's in control. So that's the picture that we have of Jesus in the boat. Jesus is asleep because he knows that God's in control. God promises to never leave or forsake his people. He promises that he's going to take care of us. This is, <laughs> this is the childlike faith that we're supposed to have. Right? Have you ever been walking near a toddler or been around when a toddler falls down? Right? Does a toddler really care who the adult is that's there to pick them up when they fall down? No, they have the faith that somebody's going to pick them up and make them feel better. And they don't particularly care who it is. Uh, Dave, my, my buddy Dave, likes to say that we have this phrase that, that's really kind of a wrong phrase. You know, something is easier than stealing candy from a baby. You ever try to steal candy from a baby? It's impossible. It's impossible to steal candy from a baby. You know why it's impossible to steal candy from a baby? Because most babies will freely offer it to you. Ooh, that looks good. Can I have a bite? You can't steal it from them. That's that childlike faith. The faith that allows us to sleep even in the biggest of storms. The faith that that caused Job to say, even though God may slay me, still I will trust him. Even though I've lost everything, still I will trust him. Jesus is asleep because he knows that God won't let anything happen to him until the appointed time. He knows his fate. He knows what's going to happen. So this storm isn't going to worry him. And it's, the storm's not going to worry him, not because he has the power over the storm, but because he trusts God's plan. The same cannot be said for the disciples. <laughs> they are freaked out. Okay, they're in the back of the boat. They're bailing water out of the back of the boat. They're hanging on for dear life. I imagine probably one or two of them is over the side rail, emptying out everything they had to eat that day. They are panicked. And Matthew, again, Matthew really softens this. I, I, I don't know if it's a literary device or whatever, but Matthew really makes this. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Peter was on this boat. I really doubt it was that calm. Okay, I really don't think. As a matter of fact, I went over to, to the book of Mark. And Mark, of course, used Peter as his primary source. Mark wrote the gospel of Mark using Peter as his primary reference to learn about the life of Jesus. So, so Mark is talking to Peter. And Mark is getting Peter's perspective on this. So Mark records... Don't you care that we are dying? <laughs> yeah, that sounds more like Peter. Jesus, what are you doing? Wake up, man, we're about to die. 
what exactly did they expect Jesus to do about it? <laughs> we want you to be awake when you die. Okay. Isn't that just kind of the epitome of the way we do things? We chastise God for doing things in a different way than we'd prefer? Because things don't go our way? This is different than asking God why. You know, when we talk about Job, when Job is sitting there and the world literally has crumbled around him, he's lost all of his wealth, he's lost all of his kids, he's lost everything, and his his four best buddies, Mo, Larry, Curly, and Shimp, these guys come up to him and they can they berate him really with their their comfort. You know, Job, it's really terrible the stuff you're going through. Are you sure you didn't lust after that young lady in the marketplace? Are you sure you didn't covet your neighbor's stuff? Are you sure you didn't have a foul mouth? Are you sure I mean they just it's gotta be your fault. And as Job is sitting on the trash heap, I mean this is I mean, really, he's sitting in a landfill, scraping at his open sores with a chunk of pottery. Yummy. He cries out to God and he says, why? Show me what I did that I can repent. See, there's a difference between asking God why and chastising God. This is is not asking God why are we about to die. This is the lump of clay yelling at the potter for turning it into a bowl instead of a vase. This is a display of a complete lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. A complete lack of trust that God will keep His promises. And this why Jesus kind of turns the rebuke on the disciples. Why are you afraid, you of little faith? What are you afraid of? Why are you concerned? Don't you trust God? Their lack of composure is the reason why Jesus teaches later on where he tells the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear because you can't add a day to your life or an inch to your stature by worrying about stuff. This is why he teaches that panicking about what the future holds when there's a circumstance or a situation we can't do anything about that doesn't help us any nobody has lived longer because of the ulcer they gave themselves now when jesus spoke to the storm again matthew doesn't tell us what was said mark does he says jesus spoke to the storm and 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 it calmed but I can, I can promise you, Jesus' attitude here was not, listen, weather, knock it off, I'm trying to take a nap. Instead, as, as Mark records, he said, peace be still. And the storm responded immediately, as creation should respond to the Creator. But I think that he had a second target that didn't listen really well. I really think he was talking to the disciples. Because when he said, you of little faith, 
he asked why they were afraid. The the admonishment there, peace be still, applies to them too. Calm down. Chill. Relax. God's in control. Now, we talked about this a little bit this morning, uh, that, that fear is not necessarily always bad. There's a, a little bit of fear can be healthy and is actually okay. If I'm dangling precariously from the, 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 the rooftop because, I don't know, I'm insane, right? The, the fear is what's going to keep my grip on the roof until such a time as either my strength gives out or somebody can stick a ladder under me so I can climb down. Of course, the fear would have been healthier fear if it kept me off the roof in the first place. But not all fear is bad. I am to a degree, when I drive, I am fearful of the consequences of breaking the law. So I tend not to do that. Normally. (laughs) Let's not talk speed limits. All right? They're just suggestions. But even then, we generally tend to stay within a boundary of that speed limit. We don't run red lights. We don't run stop signs. We don't drive the wrong way on I-10. For safety's sake, that fear is a good thing. I don't grab an unmarked bottle out of the cleaning cabinet at work and decide that I'm going to drink it. There's, there's a degree to which fear is a good thing. But terror over our circumstances, a, a fear that paralyzes like this did for the disciples. I mean, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we're going to die? If I'm going to die, I'd rather be asleep. This paralyzing fear that they had is not healthy, and it does show a lack of faith. We, and this is where we need to put feet on this, in this particular case, if you look at verse 26, when Jesus spoke to the, to the storm, Matthew says, and there was a great calm. So you had a mega storm that turned into a mega calm. So as violent as the storm was, the weather went exactly the other direction. The faith that Jesus was showing here as as he was asleep and he was resting and he wasn't panicking and he wasn't terrified is a faith that shows no matter what we face, we know God is in control. Now there are some people who will call that fatalism. Fatalism is is a wrong attitude, I think, where we say it doesn't matter what I do, God's ultimately going to take care of it so I can do whatever I want. That's, That's not right. But the idea that God is in control here is, it should be a comfort to us when we face these kinds of situations. And in our Sunday school lesson today is Nehemiah had returned to Jerusalem and the wall was in ruins and the temple was stalled out and things weren't progressing the way they were supposed to and 
there was there was trouble on the inside as the people were neglecting their responsibilities. There was trouble on the outside as the enemies around the the city were were attacking and keeping them from finishing their work. That fear had paralyzed the Israelites. It had frozen them until Nehemiah reminded them who's in control. This is one of those places where we have to remember that our our flesh would prefer to be in control itself. We want to be in control, yes? I always want to be in control of the situation. I hate not being in control of the situation. Of course, I ought to be used to it by this point in time because I'm not in control of any situation. When we hit one of these times, we need to ask the question, and and I know this was a catchphrase during the the late 80s and early 90s, and there are some, some problems with it, but this is where we ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus respond? How would Jesus tell me to respond in this situation? And I don't want to apply that blanket statement to my life because there are times where if I tried to do what Jesus did, I would be sinning. I don't have the power to forgive somebody's sin. So if I walked up to a layman and said, get up and walk, your sins are forgiven, then that would be wrong. But, but in a case like this, what would Jesus do? Jesus put his faith in God. Jesus put his trust in the Father. I know that the Father is going to preserve us. I know that God has a plan, and no matter what happens, though my flesh may fail, though I might drown at the bottom of the sea, it's okay because God's in control. Sometimes the situations that we wind up facing are our own. They're the consequences of the actions that we've done in our own sinful, I want to be in control attitude. And sometimes the storm that we speak, uh, that, we, that we face rather, is something that's happened to situations completely out of our control. Whatever the case, when, when we run into these things, we ask the question, what would Jesus do in these, this situation we ought to know without a doubt that what Jesus wouldn't do is he wouldn't panic. There is nothing that happens that is going to cause God to be surprised. There is nothing that ever takes place that escapes his notice. So if if we know that Jesus wouldn't fear and he wouldn't panic and he wouldn't worry himself into an early grave then we shouldn't do those things either. That's hard. What would he do? He would carry on with life. He would sleep. He would eat. He would teach. He would share the gospel while he could. That's what we're called to do, no matter what storms we face. Now, I know y'all are thinking, well, that's easy because, I mean, this is, this is Jesus. He created everything. He is one with the Father. He's, he's got a divine nature. So, of course, he's going to have that kind of faith. He's going to have that kind of uh, wherewithal to be able to face the storm and not be freaking out over it. But I want you to remember that 
when when Jesus was getting ready to leave, when he was getting ready to depart, in the upper room is recorded in, in John's Gospel, uh, chapters 13 through 17. Um, at one point, Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going away for a little while, and it's better for you that I go. Because I'm sending one to be with you, to comfort you, and to give you the power to do greater things than I've done. I dare say that we forget that we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the same thing that gave Jesus the power to do what Jesus did. We have the Holy Spirit. Just like Paul. You know, if you don't think it's possible for a human being to have this kind of reaction, look at Paul. Paul was imprisoned at least twice. Paul was beaten to death. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was Paul had everything that could possibly happen. Remember how he wrote to the Philippians? I have learned to be content with whatever I have, because I've had a whole bunch, and I've had nothing. And I've been through all this stuff, and it doesn't matter. What matters is I've got God. We have the same power that Paul had. We have the same ability that Paul had. We have the same Holy Spirit that Stephen had. As Stephen was standing before the Sanhedrin, and yes, I'm coming down and it's only 20 minutes till noon. Don't get used to it. We have the same ability that Stephen had standing before the Sanhedrin when he shared the gospel with the people who had crucified Jesus and they started stoning him to death. Stephen didn't stop speaking the gospel and start freaking out because people were throwing rocks at him. He stood until he could stand no more. And he continued to share the good news until he could speak no more. And the last thing that he said was, I see heaven open up and Jesus is standing at the right hand of God the Father. And then he died. We have that same ability. So I ask you, now the very last phrase in this passage, when the disciples saw that everything was calm, they broke into a round of applause and said, Yay, Jesus! No. They cowered in the back of the boat and said, What kind of man is this? That even the storm will listen to him. What was so remarkable about Jesus at this point that startled them was his faith. Was his actions. He wasn't angry at the storm. He wasn't freaking out over the storm. He spoke to the storm, peace be still. And it was. When Jesus said, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can speak to the mountain." Tell it to be cast into the sea, and it will be. 
We need to start exercising the faith that we claim to have. There's a lot of stuff going on in our world today. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of strife. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of circumstances that, quite frankly, in my flesh, freak me out. During the last six months, I have seen more panic come out of the evangelical church in the United States than I ever thought possible. And now, I'm seeing the same panic come out of other parts of the evangelical church. We say we have faith. We need to start living it.